Welcome to the GovLaunch podcast. GovLaunch is the wiki for local government innovation. And on this podcast, we're sharing the stories of local government innovators and their efforts to build smarter governments. I'm Lindsay Pika Alfano, co-founder of GovLaunch and your host. Today, Olivia from our team begins a two-part series with Detroit to discuss the city's first ever director of digital inclusion. We'll learn about how Detroit became one of the first U.S. cities to create this position and how they're tackling this critical issue. I'll turn now to Olivia to dive into this important initiative with Director of Digital Inclusion, Joshua Edmonds. Hi, I'm Olivia from GovLaunch, and I'm here with Joshua Edmonds from the city of Detroit in the U.S. Joshua, tell us a little bit about yourself. So Joshua Edmonds, the Director of Digital Inclusion at the city of Detroit. We are the first uh, municipal government to house this position. And uh, Detroit itself is a city of roughly 700,000. And of that 700,000, 25% of Detroit residents do not have uh, internet access of any kind. And roughly 46% don't have access to high-speed internet. So big shoes to fill. Uh, the mayor has made this a very uh, big priority, specifically looking at how do we extend opportunity to more residents. And we know that opportunity lives online. And so we have a real unique opportunity ourselves to be able to showcase a model that can be replicated and scaled across other municipalities that are facing their own digital divide, which is part of a larger digital divide as it relates to residents who are living in poverty uh, or adjacent to poverty who don't have access to that high-speed internet, don't have the uh, wherewithal or the ability to procure a computer that they're comfortable with, or the ability to be able to use that computer for whatever, whether that be improved learning, employability, or well-being. So obviously, there is a lot happening to keep you busy. Can you tell us a bit more on how things are going just generally in Detroit's information and innovation space today? So we're at a uh, really interesting point. And I would say that it's an inflection point. So uh, I am not saying that my role was the catalyst for every um, innovative uh, measure that's that's happening in Detroit and that will happen. But what I will say is since I came into Detroit in this role, which was January of 2019, uh, there has been a very concentrated effort to build an ecosystem that can support whatever we would like to see in Detroit. And so um, Apple, for example, has made a very unique investment in, in Detroit. This fall, they're going to be unveiling the Apple Developer Academy. That is the only developer academy in the United States, and they are putting that in Detroit, Michigan. And I'm not saying that all of our work in Detroit has led to that, but what I am saying is there's a real unique way for us to be able to empower ecosystems at scale. And so our initial focus was really how do we advocate for public interest technology in a way that can afford more residents' opportunities? So my first year in 2019 was all on advocacy and awareness and how do we build this ecosystem approach. 2020, obviously the pandemic hit, but all of those conversations in 2019, all of those bridges that were built, well, then it got stress tested in 2020. That's where we implemented a lot of what we said we were gonna do in 2019. And so now we're in 2021. Now we're fine tuning. Now we see uh, momentum in Washington. And I think that in Detroit, what we're doing our best to do is say, hey, we have an ecosystem. We have our corporations, we have our residents, we have our community groups, we're all working together, we're moving forward together. So our innovation ecosystem 
looks very similar to maybe some of your larger efforts you're seeing with larger public-private partnerships that are really rooted in community growth, but not necessarily something that we had to compromise the integrity of our community to be able to reap rewards and benefits. I really appreciate how community-centric your approach is. And that's great news about the Academy. I'm really stoked for Detroit. That's huge. It is no surprise that your city has been attracting a lot of attention because some of the initiatives you just mentioned, and of course, because of the creation of your current role. Tell us a bit more about the origin of your position and how Detroit became the first U.S. city to have its very own director of digital inclusion. So the origin of the role really came from the Knight Foundation's leadership. So the Knight's Detroit office at the time was staffed by a brilliant woman by the name of Katie Locker, who went to bat for this role. She said, what if someone in municipal government were to go to bed and wake up every single day and the only thing they thought about was the digital divide? And what if that person wasn't just a random coordinator or someone buried deep within uh, the, the bureaucratic structure of government? What if they were front facing and they just knew everything about the ecosystem? What if we had that? And so Katie, alongside our chief information officer, Beth Niblock, I actually met and convened and said, all right, we're committed to doing this. And so if you're looking at the recipe already, if I'm going to be breaking this out, one, philanthropy can be really used to jumpstart this model in a great way. And two, if you have a strong chief information officer or CIO, those are the people who really can go to bat in a unique way. And so those two were the real catalysts for this role being created. And then obviously the University of Michigan, who also played a role in this, they housed me to some extent. So they housed the dollars, the city did not receive the dollars. So for the first two years of me being in Detroit, my time was really spent on University of Michigan's payroll. However, I was public facing city of Detroit. And so when most people saw my role, they thought I've just been at the city of Detroit the entire time, which is for the most part true. I spent 98% of my time within city hall. So Really, this came from philanthropy at the intersection of academia, really supporting this role. And off of that partnership, we've been able to see, again, massive success in coordinating our ecosystem. Breaking down the funding and resourcing side of your role is super helpful, as that is often top of mind for our listeners working in local government. And really interesting that it's at the intersection of academia, philanthropy, and of course, the advocacy of your CIO. Also, you mentioned at the start some pretty shocking stats around lack of access to reliable internet. How were those stats presented to senior leaders to get their buy-in, and how did the data actually support the creation of your role in the first place? So the big piece on the data, uh, there's a huge deficiency on data for digital inclusion, huge. And so the statistics that you hear me referencing are coming from the American Community Survey. And the American Community Survey is pulled every year. Uh, unfortunately, there is a bit of a lag on it. So even the data that you hear me mentioning on this call, well, that's coming from 2019. And so as we're looking at the 2020 data, that's going to be everything that we did you know, during the pandemic, which is uh, a massive. However, the, before my role even started, this was something where the National Digital Inclusion Alliance they release every single year the least connected cities list. And uh, on that list, Detroit ranks very high, very high, specifically when we look at cities of 100,000 residents or more. And at the time of my hiring, we were the least connected city in America. 
And since my hiring, we're no longer the least connected city in America. And I feel really great about that. Um, but, but, but that being said, the, the data that we had really did frame um, the intervention. And specifically, our chief information officer, and I'm going to keep going back, that's where this starts. Our chief information officer, knowing the data, knowing the disparity, and being able to say, how can we act? And so we need better data, we need more informed data, but we have enough data through the American Community Survey to say, yeah, we can, can begin rallying our community uh, respectively to be able to look at outcomes and change the narrative. And along the way, we need to be collecting better data as it relates to sentiment analysis. How do our residents feel about our internet offerings? Uh, specifically, how much are people paying Data on affordability needs to be critical to the conversation. And so really, we're transitioning from the, all right, let's describe the problem. We're well aware of that. And I think we've been well aware of that. And most cities are, specifically, if you're not, you know, before last year, you definitely are now, uh, around the, the digital disparity in our community. But now it's taking it one step further to say, all right, we know what that is. Let's actually measure impact at scale. Let's get a better understanding of, why isn't this penetration working? Why is it that we can distribute hundreds of thousands of devices, yet we're still feeling like we're missing the mark? And I think that's where um, you hear a more sophisticated conversation brewing under this surface of getting that better data to inform better decision making to then be able to say to the federal government, hey, we've got something sustainable here that's not dependent on philanthropy, and there's true impact at scale that can happen off of this model. We'll talk in just a few moments about what you're currently working on, as well as some of your creative interventions. But before we jump into that, it would be really great to unpack what you just raised on the importance of measuring impact and how there is some data that presents, you know, enough of a business case to understand that there is a problem. But how do you actually take that further? And what are some of your strategies to take a deeper dive and better understand the digital divide issues in your community? So a lot of what we've been able to do, it's a combination of factors. And specifically what I, how Joshua Edmonds, I approach this work, this is, a lot of this is like personal to me. So when we began working with uh, churches, well, <laughs> my father's a minister. So like there, there, there's a justification already there. But taking it one step further on people's lived experiences. I have a history of just a variety of different digital inclusion roles but my one that was really, really influential was me starting in public housing. So I was working in public housing and my whole job was to push President Obama's Connect Home initiative, which was really focusing on how do we get more uh, public housing estates connected to the internet, specifically the residents. Now I remember I did about 60 different focus groups uh, with residents. And during that time, I remember there was one meeting that stuck with me. I got up and said, hey, there's this really great program by an internet provider that I'm not going to name, and it is for low-income residents. And I just, even now when I say it, I kind of cringe, but um, <laughs> there was a resident who raised her hand and said, hey, look, man, I might not be the richest person in the world, but I'm not low-income. Like, don't refer to me as that. I have a lifetime of achievements, and for you to, like, belittle me to being low-income, do better. And man, have I, that, that, that nugget of information is what carries me. So when we began talking about data, there's a narrative behind it and how people want to be treated, how people want to be addressed. And so now it's not just a, let's get people computers and internet. 
these are people who are in our community who are one day going to be purchasing uh, resources online to support a small business. These are people whose, whose kids are going to be the engineers for tomorrow working at and our Ford and General Motors plants in Detroit. And so now this transitions beyond just the data points to looking at the lives of people that we're working with. And so my approach to this is like, hey, I live this, I'm seeing this. I live in a one of the neighborhoods that is not necessarily, when when you look at Detroit, when I say where I live, this isn't one of those areas that's like, oh wow, you're downtown or midtown, I'm like, no. I'm deep in one of these neighborhoods where the digital disparity is very, very in my face. And so when we began, even last year, we distributed over in total oh, about 75,000 computers to residents and as well as internet access, providing tech support to those families. And when I was architecting a lot of uh, those endeavors, I had to take those calls from my car because I had such terrible internet in my house. And so when people are talking to us about, oh, we need more Wi-Fi, we need more this or that, I see it. I, I, I can see the intersection between the larger data point and the lived reality behind it. And so when you see us being very creative, in some cases over the top with our interventions, it's because there's that larger narrative that we are very, very sensitive to. And I think that then informs the way that we operate. That then informs the way we approach the data by saying, that's a great point. We know we need to work at that. But the, the prevailing narrative behind that that people want that digital dignity. Now, we're not going to refer to them as just the poor, the low income, the whatever, that this is a family that can essentially drive Detroit's future. And being able to approach it from that lens is, is really what we're trying to establish in Detroit. That's really powerful. I especially resonated with your point on the importance of personal narrative when trying to better understand data. And I also appreciate you sharing some of your own personal story as well. Now, the suspense has been building. We've mentioned that you've been working on some creative interventions, and now is the time for you to actually share with us some of those interventions, and we'd love to learn more about what you're actually working on to tackle the digital divide. And so, yeah, I am really excited to share this because <laughs> one of the things that we really want to focus on is exporting this model much more. Thankfully, we've been able to talk to a number of other cities that I'll mention later on, but specifically, what we've been able to create is Connect 313. Connect 313 is not a nonprofit. It is not a for-profit. Connect 313 is a brand, so to speak. And so when we begin looking at what Connect 313 has been able to do, I think it makes a lot more sense for us to look at contextually where it came from. So I remember sitting um, maybe in a bar, <laughs> um, just thinking through how do we get better? How do we get everyone to buy in to what we're doing? Because if it's just the city saying something, well, then people are just going to look at this as just the city's program. But the problem is cities aren't really equipped to bridge the digital divide. Cities are equipped to be able to facilitate and to orchestrate the ecosystem accordingly. But cities don't make devices <laughs> like computers. And cities do not own internet, specifically if you're not a municipal broadband network. If you are, then more power to you. But most large <laughs> cities are not that. And so since we know that, then we have a really unique role. And so I always tell the story of, uh, and I'll do it in a summarized capacity here, but this, the, the stone soup model, where there was travelers who went to a town and they, the first house they go to, they asked for a full meal. They said, hey, we're starving. Do you all have just anything we can eat? And they're like, no, we don't. So they go around every single house. No one had anything to offer them. So then they said, wait a second, we did this wrong. They go back to the first house and said, hey, do you just have a pot? Second house, hey, do you just have water? Hey, do you just have salt? You just have tomatoes. You just have whatever. And then they were able to create a soup for the entire community. 
And that is what Connect 313 is because we began looking at it. I was doing this the wrong way at the beginning. I was asking for like $2 million, $5 million, $10 million. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not the way to do this. It's really, hey, General Motors, I know that you are focusing on electric vehicles and the future of mobility means a lot. But in order for us to really bridge this digital divide to make sure those electric vehicles are really not only uh, built by Detroiters, but driven by Detroiters, it behooves us to invest in this digital equity pipeline. And then the same thing goes with, hey, local bank. I noticed that you all have a real keen investment specifically as it relates to online banking. And I know that you all want to be able to service more Detroiters, but if you don't invest in this pipeline, you don't get more clients for online banking. The same thing I said to my hospital systems, the same thing I said for my corporations who are looking to hire talent. Quicken Loans, they're, the, they're America's largest mortgage lending conglomerate. They're headquartered in Detroit. And in order for Quicken Loans to be able to hire workers who are going to be able to then make the case to be better taxpayers in Detroit, better earners in Detroit, we need to be investing in that talent pipeline. This all goes back to this digital divide. So then we said, all right, fine. If this is the case and you all all see your respective role in this ecosystem, might there be a way where we can all conglomerate under one, <laughs> one logo, which is then Connect 313. And so what we've done thus far, uh, first order of business was establishing a social enterprise. And so Human IT, uh, they are a national nonprofit social enterprise that collects technology, refurbishes that technology, and redistributes it to, to, to residents. Now, I oversimplified it, <laughs> but in essence, that's how they operate. And so in Detroit, we're thankful that they have a, a headquarter here. They have hired over 30 Detroiters, and these folks are the ones who are providing tech support to families, providing devices to families. So now I don't have to think about, well, where are devices coming from? We've already figured that part out. Thank goodness. And some of the aforementioned organizations I named, Quicken Loans, General Motors, they're the ones who funded them because they said, wow, if you can get residents computers and you can train residents, we can hire those residents. <laughs> and so now it's like people are acting in their own self-interest, but that's great. That's what we want. That's sustainable there. And so one, getting human IT up and running in Detroit, that was pivotal. The other piece that we did, and this was towards the uh, beginning of the year, uh, last year, uh, we raised $23 million of our mainly private capital within the city to get every single public school student a computer, internet access, and uh, tech support provided by Human IT. That was over 51,000 computers and technology packages we distributed to families. And uh, last year alone, within a six-month sprint, Human IT took over 30,000 tech support calls from families. Um, but in addition to that, because it wasn't just all about the students, we uh, received about $4 million from the state of Michigan looking at connecting seniors to, to telehealth opportunities in Detroit. We work with our local research university, Wayne State, who then on the back end use their physicians to be able to then um, um, provide better support for those families as it relates to their um, online health portal access. And so now what you're starting to see is this deviation from, on one hand, we, we call that connecting seniors. So there's a connected futures for students, connecting seniors for seniors, obviously. And earlier this year, we've got the green light to then do connecting mothers. So looking at how are we connecting um, mothers in Detroit around uh, birth resources, but doing that digitally. And then in addition, we wanna be now focusing on connecting veterans. And we're gonna keep doing these connecting campaigns because we already have the infrastructure to do this. 
we've established a Connect 313 fund. So now we can even support community. We did a community election, and now we have community representatives who can raise their hand and say, hey, I want to have X in my community. We have a fund that is specifically there to support them because we know that this work doesn't happen without community and community needs to own this work. And so then what do I do? I'm facilitating this. And so Connect 3 and 3 has been great to be able to, one, get national and federal and statewide funding for whatever we wanna do, for whatever campaign we wanna run. We have that infrastructure in place. We also have a fund that is dedicated to community projects for community ownership. In addition to that, we've even been able to um, leverage the help of celebrities like Jason Momoa, who you know plays Aquaman in, in, in Justice League. He came to Detroit and him and I did a video together really looking at how do we, one, get more attention to the digital divide and activate more relationships around Connect 313. And so now we're at this really great inflection point as we look at what's happening in Washington, as we look at what's happening in our in our city specifically, how do we go even better? How do we go further? So the other areas we're focusing on are neighborhood technology hubs. Uh, how do we support those specifically? In addition to neighborhood technology hubs, how do we get better data? And that is already coming out of our Connect 313 fund. So a lot of what we see in our interventions on the tactical side, but we're still thinking strategically, how do we do this better? Really exciting stuff. You've convinced me now. I want to invest in Connect 313. It's quite powerful how you were able to unite several different actors through emphasizing the what's in it for them and how that in turn has led to an outpour of support for tackling the digital divide. There's still a lot that we'd love to learn from you and your team, Joshua. We look forward to welcoming you again next week, where we'll focus in on how you actually operationalize a lot of this work across all areas internally within your municipality. We'll be back next week with Joshua to continue the conversation about digital inclusion. So stay tuned for an exciting follow-on episode where we'll focus on key strategies to embed digital inclusion efforts across the city and takeaways on how to break down internal silos. I'm Lindsay Pico-Alfano, and this podcast was produced by GovLaunch, the wiki for local government innovation. You can subscribe to hear more stories like this wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a local government innovator, we hope you'll help us on our mission to build the largest free resource for local governments globally. You can join to search and contribute to the wiki at govlaunch.com. Thanks for tuning in. We hope to see you next time on the GovLaunch podcast. Thank <laughs> you.